A B C D E S C H R C K I N O P Q Y S T U V W S Y N T Now Y M Y M A B C S T I O N Welcome to Care Conversations, the podcast where we explore various topics that pertain to respectful interactions with children. I'm Liz. And I'm Stephen. Today we are speaking with Nikki Carpentier, LICSW. So why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do. All right. So my name is Nikki Carpentier and um, I am, I have a social work license. So um, I'm an LICSW that stands for Licensed Independent Clinical Social Work. So I've had actually quite a few um, job experiences over my career so far. Um, I do like to dabble. The beautiful thing about being a social worker, having that license, is there's a lot of options out there, um, a lot of different places that you can work. So I've done like um, PCA work, which is personal care um, assistant um, with kids and adults, um, you know, like someone that has TBI, traumatic brain injury. Um, I've worked in the county. Um, I've worked with uh, child protection. Um, I've worked in the school briefly. I've also worked with, you know, adults. So like, um, like a skilled nursing facility. So like transitional rehab, um, adult foster care. I did that for quite a few years. Those are like, um, like group homes, like, you know, for, for adults to a house. And uh, I also have worked in home care and in hospice. And now I'm working with children and adolescents in patient mental health. So I've had a lot of different experiences and I wouldn't take any of them back um, because it has given me um, a very wide scope of understanding of what's out there and just better understanding you know, where people are coming from, what what's available, and how to really advocate for people. So, and that's like the whole family unit. So that's what I really like about it. So yeah, the other the other thing, like what kind of got me started and interested in this work, I've always wanted to be a social worker, always, my, my whole life. Um, I actually grew up in a very broken home myself, you know, pretty much most types of abuse that you can think of, I had in my home. Um, so from those experiences, I always strove to really see the best in people. I want, you know, to help other people understand that there's no one that we're going to meet that God doesn't love. I wholeheartedly believe that. So there's no one that's too far gone in this world. You know, some people kind of feel like there's a limit there and there's not, you know, God, God loves them just the same. So that's where I personally come into play when it comes to my, my goals. And I would say my life goal then overall is to be able to advocate for those that don't have a voice or can't advocate for themselves. Awesome. And that's part of why we're making this podcast is to be the voice for the child um, and advocate for children who can't speak for themselves. So that's awesome that uh, that you're a part of that advocation. We need more of that. Definitely comes with its stressors. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So if you could help us even more visualize kind of what it is that you do, like what's a typical day of work like for you? I would say a typical day would be coming into the office and then working with the interdisciplinary team that we have. And that consists of the psychiatrist who, who leads the team. And then we also have the, the nurse for each of the patients. And sometimes some of the, like the floor staff, we call them psych associates. Sometimes one of them will be represented too, than us CTCs. And so my position is a clinical treatment coordinator. And what I do is the psychotherapy for the kids that are assigned to me, as well as their discharge planning. So preparing them to go on to the next level of care. There's a lot of advocacy involved in daily work. 
And essentially it's kind of making sure that everyone's always on the same page and that the child, um, their well-being is you know, of the utmost importance and taken into consideration. Also, you know, like empowering the the kids to be able to speak for themselves too, because sometimes they, you know, have lo the low self-esteem and don't feel like they can express themselves. Sometimes also being able to challenge other other treatment team members or outpatient teams or even the families themselves to see a different perspective or um, help, just help them understand that this is what um, is in the kid's best interest. Um, it, can be, it can be hard sometimes when you have kind of your own assessment um, and thoughts about the trajectory of where a child should be going that um, differs from other team members or the family. So part of that is just bringing them all together to really explore this and get on the same page so that overall we are doing what's best in the long run for the child, not just an immediate thing, but how we can um, kind of see how all of these pieces are gonna look moving forward because a child is not fully developed and they need that guidance, right? Sometimes they don't know what's best for themselves. Right. <laughs> right. But also sometimes they do, you know, like sometimes they are, they have good insight and they do know themselves better than what other people think, right? The parents think that they know what's best for the child, but really it's not. So um, it's just kind of weighing those pieces in every single kid and their situation is completely different. Yeah. So you mentioned you do like psychotherapy with the kids. What is involved with psychotherapy? What does that process look like? What's like the goal of that? So our therapeutic framework in patient is crisis stabilization. That's our, that's our theoretical framework. So what that means is, um, you know, what, what brought you to where you are now, right? So like what was, what was the antecedent pieces? What, what problems or stressors occurred recently that led to this crisis? And then from there, it's how do we stabilize you, whether that be with, you know, the men your mental health piece, um, is medication involved? How do we try and reduce the symptoms so that we can get you to a place where you would um, be able to um, then continue to work on further stabilization? You know, for, for us on the unit, sometimes kids aren't receptive to therapy at that time, right? Because they are in that crisis, they're in that survival mode. And the biggest thing for, for us as therapists is, just seeing what's going on, what the problem is, and what needs to take precedence, right? So kind of prioritizing the issues um, and then connecting them to the resources to be able to further work on those things. So is the child gonna be discharged completely devoid of suicidal ideation? No, probably not, right? <laughs> Sometimes parents think that, right? That we're going to fix their kid and then out the door they go and they're never going to feel that stuff again. But the reality of the situation is there's a reason why they got to where they are. They're not in the, their original stress environment when they're in the hospital. So we have to be realistic in understanding what are those pieces at home that caused, you know, this crisis, how can we try and offer the best support or explore options to be able to help them cope and be successful when they return there. So we do a lot of reframing like cognitive distortions, right? Like catastrophizing situations or black and white thinking. Um, it's kind of like that all or none type of attitude, which are, you know, um, just learned, learned behaviors and learned thought processes, right? Because I think even us as adults work with it all the time, right? We, we struggle with that. It's, it's easy to wear something or look horrible one day and be like, oh my word, they're staring at me because I'm so, I look so bad today, right? But that is uh, jumping to conclusions, right? It's not necessarily true or real. It's our mind thinking that. So like kids so easily jump into those things. And part of that is because their, um, you know, their prefrontal cortex is not fully developed yet, right? So they don't have that full ability to rationalize and really understand with the strength of processing that adults do and sometimes parents forget that you know other things that we do other interventions as therapists is the cognitive behavior therapy which is those distortions and um dialectical behavior therapy is like mindfulness um that's a huge piece for the kids is 
identifying ways to be able to cope, like breathing techniques, meditations, those kinds of things. So, you know, and with the younger children, it's more that stop and think. So, cause they're more concrete, right. In, in their thinking process. So um, you have to really tailor your therapeutic interventions based on their age or their cognitive level. So, like I said, each child is, is different, but your goal is to try and help them be able to understand a little bit of those stressors and a self-awareness of how that's manifested in their body. What are some of the biggest problems that you see kids come in with? As a social worker, my my uh, my uh, mindset is person and environment. Like that's how we approach our work. And I would definitely say that dysfunctional family systems and their environments are the biggest problems that kids have. And I know that's a pretty broad, ambiguous concept, but essentially what it is is when there's dysfunction in their, I guess, their environments that they're most accustomed to or most exposed to, they're going to be influenced by that and be affected by it, you know? Um, And each child is going to respond differently because each of us could have the same, uh, be exposed to the same experience, but totally respond and be influenced by it totally differently. So I would say we encounter a lot of divorced parents, not all of them, but there's a lot of divorced parents or separated ones and they don't know how to co-parent. They don't know how to do it in a healthy way. Um, Like they let their personal resentments between each other continue to like compromise the care and well-being of the child. It's, it's honestly selfishness. That's the barrier to the child being able to adapt in the way that they're supposed to because the homes is traumatic for kids. I don't think that, I don't think that the world gives that enough credit for how damaging it could be. And I would say parents with mental illness is a huge piece too. We actually encounter a lot of parents that have their own mental illness, bipolar, schizophrenia, anxiety, depression. It's a huge struggle. So, you know, when you see the child as the patient, I mean, it's really kind of the parents too, right? Um, sometimes more so than the child. Um, and how do you work with that? <laughs> because that's not something that's going to be able to get fixed, right? Um, you know, maybe maybe better managed, but it's going to be what it's going to be. So how does the child work with that? It can be a huge stressor on the family. And the other huge stressor in and of itself is a child going inpatient. You know, that's very disruptive to the child and to the family. Like, it's huge huge experience. The other piece too is parents a lot of times feel like the kid is the issue, Mm. right? Like instead of they're being held in accountability towards the parent themselves too. You almost kind of see it where like the parent is trying to see it as like a respite stay um, or here's my kid, fix them. I'll pick them up in a little bit, you know? (laughs) That's not how it works. There's a reason why this kid is in crisis right? And that takes the whole family system to be able to manage and offer the adequate support needed. So the child does not only need to work on themselves, it needs to be a shared responsibility. So that sharedness is what's really missing. And parents can be very stubborn about that. And you can't, I mean, you can't change someone's mindset if they don't want to change their mindset, right? Like I can't, I can't convince somebody that's completely, you know, against that type of mindset. What I think the best thing that we can do as therapists and social workers at the hospital is to try and work with the parents and the kids to be able to um, get to a place of just like a shared alignment and understanding, right? That this is, this is a group effort. It's not just one person is the problem. It's how, like, what, what are all our, our stressors as a family, you know, individually and together. And, um, you know, what can we do collaboratively to pretty much, you know, fix that dysfunctional piece so that there can be a little bit more harmony there so that the child can continue to foster and grow the way that they're supposed to. And I think the other piece, too, is, you know, when parents don't put in enough preventative measures, they, they can minimize the problem sometimes. And I think part of this is, possibly mental health, you know, of the, of the parent, but 
there's such a stigma against mental illness in this, in this world, you know? And so I think that it's hard for parents to admit or be vulnerable about maybe the struggles that they are witnessing with their own child. And they try to just minimize it so that it's not something that has to be faced or for them not to feel a sense of judgment. So I think that they can minimize the problem, but I also think that they can catastrophize the problem. I think that especially parents that have like a lot of anxiety and whatnot, they can, you know, say, I don't know what's going on with my child. You know, they're doing this and this, like maybe their behaviors are just unmanageable and out of control. Well, what does that mean? Right. Cause it could easily be normal development and it, it might not. Right. I think the biggest thing is just meeting them where they're at and then trying to get to them to a place themselves so that the child can just get what they need um, and feel that sense of support that's obviously lacking. But I think reaction is the problem versus a preventative, you know, piece. So, so like when, what are some of those preventative pieces? Do you have examples of what those might be? It depends on where each child is at. So, and it depends on what they're um, struggling with. So what I would say is um, making sure that there's a good support system. So it's not just the family support system. That's like other social supports too. So if they're, you know, if they're feeling a sense of isolation and whatnot, I think that's a big piece. And I think the other thing too is um, approachability, right? Like if, if uh, parents are expressing to them, Hey, you can be vulnerable around me. I want to hear you. I'm not going to stifle what you're saying. Right. Or I'm not going to like, I, I hear you, but you know, are you listening? That's a big issue is, oh, I'm, I'm hearing you, but are you listening? Um, sometimes uh, kids cannot feel heard. Actually, it's a big thing with these kids on the unit is they deep down just don't feel heard. And I, I think that um, other things too is um, just seeing the signs as early as possible. Like I said, like there can feel like I, I don't want to, talk about my kid possibly having mental health issues because of judgment from the community or from other family members, trying to see the signs as early as possible, trying to remove that stigma of mental health. Like we need to teach the world that it's okay, that it's normalized and um, that we, a lot of us go through it at some point in our lives, right? Um, the other piece too, like taking a child seriously, right? Sometimes parents and you know, the community will just be like, oh, you're just a child, you know, like, what do you know? Um, that's a big piece is taking them for what they say, because otherwise they're going to learn to not really feel like they are taken seriously and that they do have an important role and they can contribute, which, is, which are big key pieces in development. I think another thing too, for a preventative measure is to not invalidate them. Um, so I was kind of talking a little bit about you know, hearing their feelings and, and what they're saying. But actually, I think a lot of us do it all the time. I do it with my own kids and I have to remind myself too, you know? Um, so like if my two-year-old is saying, you know, I don't want to go down there, I'm scared. Well, how, how would you respond, right? As a parent, what are you going to say? You're going to say, there's nothing to be scared of, right? Because you think that that's comforting. Um, and, and part of that can be comforting in some way, but the other part is you're invalidating them, right? Like you're not meeting them with where they're at, right? I, I hear that you're scared, honey, and I'm here for you, right? So I'm going to give you, know, give you a snuggle and I'll go down there with you and, and be like, do you see anything? I, you know, I don't see anything, right? So it's just kind of like jumping, jumping into it with them. You know, a true understanding is that child, that two-year-old is actually feeling fear. Whether or not it is substantiated or not, they feel it and that's real. So we, we need to validate that and help them feel that sense of security and support by joining them in their world, giving them a snuggle, going, you know, downstairs where it was dark, where they felt that fear, turning the light on me, like, do you see anything, you know, like kind of helping them debunk or reframe that together. Um, I think that that is um, a part that all of us, you know, parents need to continue to reinforce and work on ourselves. 
I do it all the time, right? It's it's natural to be like, there's nothing to be scared of. It's okay, right? Um, but validation is the biggest, biggest thing. I would say another preventative measure too is unconditional love and affection. And that's like from birth on, like randomly being able to uh, go up to one of our children and say, you know what, I love you, right? Or giving them a hug. That's completely not tied to any reward or, um, you know, anything that they, however they've performed, right? An achievement or anything like that. You can also, but being able to go in between all those things and still be like, I, you know, I love you regardless. I love you even though you got last place. I, I love you, you know, even though, you know, you just, uh, had to take a, an emotional break for hitting sister, you know, like just those kinds of things, because it helps them know that your love is not attached to their actions or their performance. And that's where you get a stronger sense of self-love and security in that. Um, I think that that's it for what I would say for preventative measures. I mean, if they go into the hospital and then we're discharging, there's a lot of measures that we also take, right? So like the crisis support line, support groups, um, you know, those possible outpatient programs, making medications and sharps inaccessible if they, you know, do any self-injurious behavior or, you know, to prevent possibility of like overdose as a suicide plan. We do those kinds of things too. I'm just wondering for the for the parents and the families that are open to um, working on things further and and addressing the issues that maybe come up for them as well. Do you then have like a path for them or resources for them that you kind of connect them with? Yeah, actually, um, more often than not, because we're performing individual therapy and family therapy on the units from there, we will connect them to like a family therapist outpatient, or, um, you know, if we want to see more person in environment. So like the child, um, is really just kind of, uh, presenting the, um, destructive behavior more in the home setting versus like at the hospital or at the school, that kind of thing. Um, sometimes it's really important to be able to see them in that environment, displaying those behaviors to be able to work on correcting them and redirecting them and things like that. And so we will suggest intensive home services. So that's where the therapists actually come into the home and work with the child and the parents. And there's, there's different theor- uh, therapeutic frameworks too. So like some of them, like structural family therapy will focus a little bit more on the parent as the patient and then being able to help teach them how to work with the child. And then other, other, um, Frameworks such as CTSS, which is Children's Therapeutic Supports and Services, um, they are more more geared towards um, the child is the patient, um, but they still work collaboratively, you know, like with the family. So there's a lot of different approaches out there, um, and that's why whenever you know a kid comes into us, we see what's been done, you know, like what's been tried, see how receptive family is, you know, the level of engagement, just overall understand how, how, where, where should we go in the trajectory of this so that we can feel a sense of reassurance that there's going to be success when they leave the hospital? Because this is the highest level of care. They're coming to us. It's a kind of a cry for help, right? And we need to take it seriously every single time. So I know a lot of families see kind of counseling therapy as like a luxury and it is something that can, tends to be like more costly Do you know of any resources that kind of help families with this care before it becomes a crisis situation and makes that more accessible for families? Well, a lot of times I will refer to the county because they do have a wealth of knowledge and resources. When we see a family that's kind of struggling with understanding how to navigate the community and like see like what sliding scale for therapists or you know where does my insurance cover or things like that um we will refer there um a lot of times we the clinical treatment coordinators if we feel like they are struggling to navigate and to you know you worry about follow through right and outcome of whatever we're whatever we're coordinating how can we feel a sense of reassurance that they're actually going to do it <laughs> right we will refer to mental health case management at the county. So every single county has a version of that. There are, of course, criteria to be met with those types of pieces. A lot of times you kind of have to have like a PMAP, which is a 
uh, commercial version of uh, with MA or straight medical assistance. Yeah, so we will refer there and the, the job of that case manager then is to help them, you know, follow through on those services, but also identify as other issues, you know, arise or they may need a different type of service. They're there to be kind of like us in the hospital and being able to get them the help that they need. When we do see that struggle that, you know, they think that it's a luxury, which let's be real, a lot of people think that there are actually a lot of places out there that accept most any form of insurance even tricare which is va insurance which is not very compatible for children and adolescents but i would i would challenge really most parents if they were to have that mindset of you know oh there's just no therapy out there that's covered and stuff i would probably beg to differ yeah that's uh, really good to know that that it's actually more accessible than people think i think yeah, therapy is really important and a lot of people need it, but there's a lot of barriers, I think, for people. And I think accessibility is one of those barriers is that people think, oh, I just can't afford it. There's there's no way. But it's great to know that, that it actually is. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes if parents kind of use the barrier of I can't transport the kid or things like that, I mean, insurance will provide transport to these appointments because it's a medical appointment. Or there, you know, with today's day and age, um, I guess the one thing that you can see out of COVID is there's a boom in, you know, uh, virtual therapy. Uh, that's not for everybody, right? I mean, uh, you know, you have to use caution with people that are like kind of actively suicidal and things like that. But um, overall, I, I, I think that we have more access to therapy than we ever have. So like parents and families have a huge, huge impact on the well-being of the child or the adolescent, what do you see the role of like secondary caretakers and educators being? I think of a huge role. I do. Uh, I would see all of them, honestly, as caregivers in general. Parents are the caregivers. You know, a lot of family members can also be seen as caregivers. The school system would be caregivers. I think that they do have a huge role. So I would say a lot of times adolescents, the age group of what I mostly work with are more of that preteen and teenager age. And a lot of what they're going through, you know, using like Eric Erickson's stages of development is just role confusion. So they're struggling and striving identity in this world. And when roles are not identified, left is really just confusion with how they see life how they see the world and where they fit into it all, right? Um, we dive for a sense of purpose. And the home is their first social environment to see how this world works. If that's dysfunctional, right, we're looking to these other social environments too to try and challenge and, and um, compare it. And so when you do have loving caregivers and other aspects like in the school setting and whatnot, then they're like, wait, this isn't how the world works? And if they haven't established trust in their parent or their caregiver at home, and they're able to do that with caregivers like at school and that kind of thing, it's a huge asset to the child. And, and that's why it's really important that we have therapeutic services and social workers and those, those like in the school setting too, to be able to be you know, trained and equipped and skilled to give them more emotional support and to identify maybe problems in the home setting that isn't being witnessed, that um, then we can confront. Because just like here in the hospital, when I say it's like their their cry for help, like you can see that in the school setting too for children that are being abused and um, have you know things going on at home, right? So that's why it's really important that we will see these students there and see you know bruises on them with various stages of healing, and you can question um you know is abuse going on or things like that. But I think that the school environment is like the second biggest place for these kids. And um, it offers structure, which if they don't have that at home, it's really, really important. I think it just pays a, plays a very critical role. I think that teachers do need to understand just how important their role is more so than maybe they, they initially do. Uh, you mentioned Eric Erickson's hierarchy of Stages of development. Stages of development. That's like maybe someone who's had uh, education classes maybe would understand what that is. Could you maybe go a little more in depth about that? Just explain 
what that's about briefly. Yeah. So, so Eric Erickson has um, stages of like psychosocial development, and there's actually a lot of them out there. Um, you have PJ, you have Freud. I don't, you've heard of Freud, I'm sure, but they all kind of have their own different understanding of how children develop in this world and what's like critical at each of their stages. I am personally very biased to appreciating Eric Erickson, so that's why I refer to him a lot. But um, they have a lot of different stages. So, you know, you have like that, that baby stage, the trust versus mistrust, trust, which is a huge foundation of their upbringing of, do I trust this world? Am I going to get my needs met? You know, autonomy versus shame and doubt. That's like, if we're constantly restricting a child of no, 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 and restricting their environment and not, not allowing them to explore, it's going to cause a lot of shame and doubt later on. Um, you know, initiative versus guilt, industry versus inferiority, um, and the age group that I work a lot with is that identity versus role confusion. So, I mean, I would just encourage, you know, the listeners to, to research it and look it up because it's very, you know, interesting, right, information, and it gives us a really good guideline on understanding what the child is facing at the time internally um, that's really critical to their development. Because when it's not really met at that stage, you do see the ramifications of it later on in life. I did look in, I did read some of Eric Erickson's work during my Montessori did studies. You? But uh, yeah, I think I read a book by him. Uh, it, was, it was one of our assigned books. Uh, I don't quite remember everything, but what you mentioned about the um, stages development, I definitely uh, remember that. Here, here's one other thing that I wanted to kind of add to is, you know, we absorb everything that's going on around us, right? And kids are huge sponges, right? For knowledge and understanding. <laughs> My two-year-old earlier today just said, what the heck? <laughs> so I'm like, oh, my word. <laughs> but that's me. <laughs> you know, we have to be mindful of those things, right? Because they literally will do what they're seeing and what they're experiencing. We have so such a strong role in that. So when it comes to like caregivers and whatnot, like in the school setting and the importance of them going back to that, like when parents, for instance, when they don't coexist well together, you know, they're arguing, they're fighting, they're seeing how to not constructively have disagreement. If they don't know how to, you know, if the parents aren't showing proper empathy for things, proper restraint for things, proper coping underneath stress that we always encounter daily they're going to mimic those responses, right? So they're also going to have an inability to be able to do those effectively. Um, and then they're not going to be able to translate that to those other social environments. So like, how are they to really know any different? And that's where the critical role of school and other structured environments that they also are going to um, plays that important role of being able to help correct that in some way to see, to, to show them this is this is how we are appropriate in our conversations and and diffusing you know conflict and things like that you mentioned that like it's really important for teachers to recognize signs of abuse and stuff you know teachers are mandated reporters can you talk a little bit more about mandated reporting um who is mandated reporters you know who are those people certainly anyone who's done child care should I've had training on that, but maybe just give us a, a, a little bit, maybe from your perspective about mandated reporting and how to do that. You know, I I don't understand like the long list of exactly who are mandated reporters, but I know almost anybody that's working with children, for instance, or um, vulnerable populations, you know, like adults that um, also are vulnerable, vulnerable, you know, you're going to be a mandated reporter for as well. Um, so a lot of what that entails is, you know, like if you are, if you are witnessing, or if you're seeing something that's suspicious, right? Like the bruises or, you know, um, other, other pieces too, like falling asleep in class, being very disruptive, you know, there's a lot of different things that's not going to lead you right to thinking abuse, but you're going to question it. So, uh, you know, the first step, um, would be like, do I have enough suspicion to think that this could be abuse? But we, it's not our job to investigate it, you know? So like, that's kind of the difference is sometimes we want to get caught up, any of us, mandated reporters, social workers too, we're like, oh, like, let's just investigate this further because I don't want a CPS report to disrupt the family or, you know, I feel like it's overreacting 
to something that might be minimal. But what can happen is sometimes if we have that mindset, someone who is experiencing a level of abuse is going to get overlooked. So, you know, it's not our job to investigate and prove if something is substantiated or not. Our job is okay, are we seeing something suspect? Do we have reason to think that there's a possibility? Report it, right? And there, every single county has a reporting line that you can call, and then every single one also, for the most part, has an online form that you can make. And then they're gonna be reaching out within 24 hours to let you know if you're the reporter of whether or not it was actually opened to assigned to somebody for investigation or if it was not opened. What I always encourage people to, as mandated reporters, is it is okay to continue to report. You know, so if you're seeing new things or, um, you know, it hasn't necessarily been initially dealt with already, or if it continues and there's not really intervention by the county, continuing to report will pile those things on and make a stronger foundation for there to be, uh, you know, an investigation and whatnot made. Um, so I always encourage people to err on the side of caution that how I present it to families too is, you know, we don't want to see this as punitive, right? Reporting to the county should not be seen as punitive. It should be seen as an opportunity of how can, you know, us as a county, us as workers come alongside you as a family because we're, we're seeing an identification of struggle, right? And what can we do to help give you additional supports so that you aren't struggling or so that you do understand what is, you know, like per se, maybe proper parenting or that kind of thing. Because sometimes if you maybe grew up in an abusive household or you just didn't have very healthy parents, right, with their discipline strategies, you're going to do what you've learned unless you're taught otherwise. I mean, we're gonna always do the same thing unless we're taught something different. So sometimes it's just, oh, I didn't know that there was another way to work with kids or another way to respond, you know? Sometimes there is acknowledgement of what they're doing and they don't care, you know? So every parent is different, but for the most part, when it comes to parenting uh, and when it comes to the family system, is we, we are going to repeat what we know and what we have been taught unless we are exposed to something different to challenge that yeah sure and i think a lot of abuse is like generational it's uh it's psych cyclical how would you say the word yeah it is cyclical it's it is cyclical yeah mm -hmm. so yeah um just being able to it's something that has to be like stopped somewhere along the line <laughs> thing too steven because um you know we encounter a lot of different cultures in the hospital setting and there's a lot of diversity in the way people parent so we always have to be very sensitive to the way that their culture might respond to it but at the end of the day we do have to make sure that they are safe right so you know maybe a, a rite of passage that includes you know maybe cutting up the child's body in some way um that might be a cultural piece for them but it is not safe and needs to be addressed by CPS because that is um, not in the best interest of the child. So um, just those types of pieces are um, things that we, we need to weigh, but it is not up to us to decide really what is that abuse or not. It's do we think that there's reasonable suspicion for it? Then we need to report it and then let child protection do their job to um, substantiate it or not. So I'm always erring on side of caution and reporting when I need to, because then I know that I did my job, but I also know that, you know what, if this was one of those handful of chances where there's something, something was going on, I was able to help be a voice for that kid. And honestly, I'm okay with the parent being mad at me. That's all right, because it's about safety. And that child matters. And that circles back to like your kind of opening statements of being the voice for the child. Mandated reporting is such an important aspect of that because if you don't make the report, that child can't do it. So yeah, they're not going to have a voice. They're not going to be heard. And I think the other thing too that sometimes um, us mandated reporters can get caught in is when we're assessing a patient or the, the family and they're like, oh, we've already handled that or, oh, it's already been reported. It's our job to still report it because chances are they could be lying about it. 
So even though it might seem cumbersome and you want to give them the benefit of the doubt, we can't. That's a great point. Yeah, that's yeah. a really good point. <laughs> Do you feel like you had anything else, Nikki, that you wanted to say specifically before we start wrapping up? Just, I guess, responding to your other questions that you still had, but um, because I do think that a lot of the population that also comes on our unit are not neurotypical. Yeah, so like <laughs> they have autism and uh, that that type of diagnosis. I think that there's pretty basic things that help us be able to work with these individuals. And I think the biggest thing is showing them that there's someone that's always there. I think that's a, a big piece too is meeting them and joining them in their world because they are in their own world and how they view it, right? They have a difficult time perspective taking and, and, and understanding another's perspective. Right. Um, and that's not meant to be, um, you know, I'm being rude to you. I'm, you know, not understanding you. It's, it's a, a legitimacy there that they cannot understand and perceive another's perspective. So being able to to meet them in their world, I think another big piece is like not trying to force them into societal expectations because we do, right? Even our own children naturally, like just subconsciously, we will mold them into how we find we should move around in this world and understand this world and think in this world and behave. And we cannot fit these individuals into a box like that. And I think that we should also see children in general, right? Like that, like that developmental stage of needing to explore. They need to be able to do that, to compare things and see what's out there. But sometimes parents and other people in the community want to force or condition these individuals to behave in a certain way, because if they're behaving in, maybe their current their current presentation such as like arm flapping you know you see that a lot of times like with individuals that have autism you know repeating themselves a lot over and over again you know or maybe some tics things like that it makes other people uncomfortable so they try to correct that behavior but something that people are not understanding about this population is that is that's the way they cope with stress and and the thing is is they are so much more sensory oriented than neurotypical people are that their stress and their anxiety and the way that they're trying to control it it all manifests physically so you know we may be able to take a deep breath or to just be able to kind of like rethink or, or you know our strategies and cool ourselves down in our heads but for them it manifests so physically that you're going to see those types of things People think that, find themselves uncomfortable with that because it doesn't follow that societal norm. So they want to correct that behavior. But what it does is it's teaching them that they can't, they're not supposed to cope then. They're supposed to just allow themselves to just feel this constant state of anxiety. And a lot of times it'll mount up, you know, it'll snowball and then it'll get displaced on something, right? And then you're like, where did that come from? Right? Because we're not allowing them to cope in the way that they feel that they need to. Um, so like that is a big piece when it comes to kids or even maybe adults with autism is um, meeting them where they're at. This is their way of coping, which is different maybe than what most people cope, but it's not wrong. It's just different. Yeah. So that's what I would say are the biggest thing about neurodiverse children is, is um, joining them in their world and knowing that underneath that behavior, there's a need that's not being met. And that's a child in general, but especially with neurodiverse children, because a lot of times they are being understood and they are being forced and conditioned into some things that just are not who they were made to be. If you could give like an estimate of maybe like the percentage, how, how many children do you see that are neurodiverse? That's really hard to differentiate right now, because I would say with the COVID crisis, you are seeing a lot of change of structure and lack thereof. So a lot of the kids more that are coming on the units are kids that are struggling with like autism and, and, and similar disorders because it's all disrupted, right? And they need that structure. So we're seeing a lot more of that. It's, it's hard to say. I, I, if I had to guess, I'd say maybe 30 
percent on average, I would say, would probably be either diagnosed with it or have very uh, traits close to the cutoff of what autism is, right? So because there's testing for it. Yeah, no, thank you for bringing that up. That was one question I was forgetting. And yeah, for sure. I mean, it's definitely important to talk about the neurodiverse population and and how that factors in. And And then, um, you know, just talking about, you know, children in general, when it comes to, you know, working with them, like what in general we can understand about kids and what they need the most is patience. It's a big thing. So like even us as parents, if because we're all human, right? We're human. We all have feelings. Um, <laughs> we need to offer the patience, but if we don't have that, if we're having a bad day or if we are in sensory overload or if we just don't have the tolerance for it, right? Mommy, 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 or I'm gonna throw punches at my sibling, you know, just different things like that. Sometimes we need emotional breaks too. And so like, I found myself the other day, like I was overwhelmed with the kids. And of course there's other people there, like my husband and whatnot. I just silently left the room and I went to my bedroom and I just decompressed because I did not want to explode on my kids. And it was a healthy way of being able to cope. So I could decompress and I could regain that strength again to be able to give them the best you know, version of myself. So we all need those times to be able to um, just regain that that ability to handle the, the stress, right, of parenting. Um, building rapport is a big thing too, you know, so like if you're just working, you know, with a kid in the school setting or, you know, daycare or whatever it is, um, rapport is the biggest thing uh, to build before you really are able to mold and, and help them grow. They have to be able to trust you, right? So that's a big thing. Validation, I talked about that earlier on. Um, that's a huge deal is when they're expressing their emotions, we don't want to dismiss it, right? We don't want to be dismissive of their feelings and, oh, I'm not feeling well today or I couldn't get out of bed and stuff. Oh, you're lazy. Is that what it is? Like you're lazy? No, no, right? There's a reason why they're saying the things that they are and they need to feel heard. And if they don't feel heard, they're going to talk to you less and less and less they're gonna withhold information from you they're not gonna feel like like you're on their side right or that you take them seriously so validation is a huge piece as a parent learning from them too right because they're they're learning the world sure and a lot of times you know adolescents can think that they know everything (laughs) but at the same time they're human just like any of us and we can learn from them right we can learn from their experiences because like i said we can all all face the same experience but we're going to take it in completely differently each of us so we want to join them in in their understanding and their perception because that does need to be respected as honestly i would see that as a human right so um and then seeing under the the facade because in the school setting or wherever you're seeing a kid if you see a kid that's bullying others or is super super guarded or um you know you can just tell they're not being honest and stuff like there's reasons for it like you should just know that right up front there's reasons for that sometimes people can just chalk that up to be like they're frustrating they don't care about anybody they're selfish you know and so then they just they don't try to have a relationship with them or you know they just um kind of write them off I guess you could say but the thing is is a lot of times what you're seeing are safeguards that these kids put in place it's like a survival technique or instinct that they have that they probably learned right and adapted with to protect themselves so you know like for for instance a lot of the kids on the unit I have to build rapport first and when I see a sense of guardedness and stuff of course your initial instinct is oh I don't want to work with that kid you know like they are just not the top of my day but they are doing that because they're challenging whether or not you're going to still be there you know it's like a lot of that push and pull of should I trust you oh see you're not going to be there for me Um, just kind of reinforcing those cognitive distortions. So the best thing to do with any of these kids is to continue to push and show that you're there, that you want to build their trust and that no matter what they do, even with what you're doing now, like I see through it and I care about you and that's what matters, right? That you matter. And regardless of what your behavior is or what you do, 
I care about you and you matter. I think those are kind of key pieces, I guess, with working with kids. Yeah. So you mentioned, um, just want to step back a little bit. You mentioned um, how you were decompressed when you had to step away from. So what are some, what are some ways that you would suggest decompressing? As a parent? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Or, or you could maybe share a little bit of both. How do you decompress, you know, in your work as well versus as a parent? Is it different? Is it similar? Yeah. Are you, are you talking about kind of like uh, self-care or like in the moment? In the moment. So I would say in the moment, I like if I'm interacting with kids or even with you know, adults and there seems like there's a frustration building. I try to emotionally take a step back in my head, like in that moment, if I'm still there and be like, okay, why am I really feeling this way? How is the other person perceiving me? And you know, like, uh, what are, what's the bottom piece here? Like, am I displacing my frustration? And it's really coming out in this really small thing, you know, like in a marriage, I would say in the moment, that's what I try to do is try to take a step back, um, be a little bit more mindful of the steps of the conversation and and how that can be de-escalated. I try to have self-awareness of how I'm coming across. If it's getting to the point though, where it's like, you know, what I'm going to say really is something that's probably not going to be constructive. um, Or I do recognize that I am very frustrated for whatever reason could be like my pregnancy hormones, right? Or just a parent that's been really stressed at work or something, you know what I mean? If if you recognize that it's gonna kind of continue to escalate and you don't really have the self-control at the time to be able to bring that back down, that's where I will personally be like, you know, like I, I just kind of need an emotional break. Um, the biggest piece is you gotta return to it, right? You gotta return to that conflict. And I would say, The blessing of having a two-parent household is if I'm taking an emotional break, then my husband can explain to the kids about what I'm doing and why, Um, because kids need that immediate feedback, right? So like immediate, you know, positive reinforcement and things like that, because they don't have that development yet rationally to tie one thing to the next if there's too much of a gap time in between they're going to be confused. So that is um, what we kind of do in our own household is making sure that we are always explaining things that we're trying to avoid the, because I said so, because how much more of, you know, an abstract ambiguous response can you give to a kid, right? They, they don't understand that. They just know, oh, I got to abide. Just, I don't know why, you know what I mean? (laughs) Blind following. Um, But it shows respect to the child too if you're willing to down to their level and explain why they have a better understanding and interpretation of the world and and I do see it in my own kids you know even now like how strong their thought processing is in the, the steps of that processing because we've taken the time to explain all these situations to them and why we do the things that we do you know so like even so I have a two and a four year old and you know they're constantly you know, at, at odds with each other. But, you know, when it comes to sharing, it's a big problem, right? Kindness, that's a big problem that they, you know, of course are working through. But when one of them is crying because the other kid wanted that toy and that person took it from them, you know, usually they will just take it and be like, okay, now it's my toy, right? Because they don't really understand a, a lot of that empathy yet. But with my two and four-year-old, what I'm coming to see now is, you know, the kid is crying and um, after a little bit of time, it's like the other child is processing through it. And then they're like, oh, you know, they're crying. Um, What's the reason for the crying, right? Oh, because I took their toy. Oh, how do I rectify this? I'm going to give them back the toy. And they do it on their own. And um, it is an amazing feeling as a parent to see that because that's learned behavior. You know what I mean? Like, that's something that they've learned and they've developed that empathy from witnessing and experiencing it and they're passing that along. You know, we do have to give our these kids that credit to where it's due because they're very capable, a lot more than we realize, um, but they're huge sponges and we have to respect that. So we do need to meet them at the level of what they're capable of, of um, understanding, teaching them the way of the world because they deserve to know that. 
Sure, and I find that when I'm in a, a preschool classroom, when I get down uh, to the kids' level, when I meet them where they're at, and like with the sharing situation, if I walk through that with them and explain, oh, look, you took their toy and now they're crying, like half the time the kid will just give the toy back by themselves, you know, like, oh, oh, I see what I see what's happening. All right, here you go. You know? back, right? Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, rather than rather than demanding to the kid, no, you need to give it back. It helps them learn more by by walking them through in, you know, those steps and and, uh, teaching them through example how to empathize. Exactly. I I think that's a huge point, Stephen, too, because um, if we are just telling the perpetrator, uh, you did this wrong, you shouldn't do this and stuff. What is what's going to grow in their head? Shame and guilt, right? And that's not healthy for a child or an adolescent or any of us, right, is that development of shame and guilt. And we want to allow them a sense of control in whatever way they can. That's obviously safe and healthy. So doing exactly like what you said, Stephen, of, uh, you know, like, how did that make them feel helps them understand that this is why we do the things that we do. You, you know, how would you feel if, you know, you had that toy taken away from you? So for the perspective taking piece and then inviting them to be able to correct the situation, you know, um, I think that that's a, a big piece is us as parents, we try to control way too much of the situation when we should be empowering our kids to be able to control it themselves because they do have that power within. Yeah, I find that when I try to hold on to control, uh, I'm I'm the most stressed out. And if I just let go of it, I find everything does work out just fine. And I, I find more at peace with myself. And I find, yeah, it empowers the kids. And, and that's when I actually find the most stability and structure, in fact, in the classroom by letting go of control myself and allowing the environment and you know, the, uh, the foundational elements that were set up before to, to be the control or like the classroom rules, for example, rather than myself being the one in control, that's when there's actually the most, uh, order in, in peace in the classroom or, or in the environment. Yeah, definitely. That sense of purpose, right. That I think follows us throughout our whole development, honestly. Um, you know, like another example that I had the other day is, you know, I'm stressed out about having to make meals and you got to set the table and you got to do all these things. It's like, well, you know, your initial reaction is, okay, I'm going to have my kids at the table. It gives them a sense of responsibility. And then you're like, oh, but then they're not going to do it right. And then it's going to take more time. But the thing is, is it's just like that mantra, right? Where it's like, you can give them a fish and it'll last a day, but you teach them to fish, right? And then it'll last a lifetime. So it's like, you're going to struggle for a little bit with them not knowing where to put the placemats and, you know, maybe breaking something. But in the end, they learn a sense of purpose. They, they are a participating member of the family. And you're able to have just one less stressor, right, during mealtime because now someone else is able to help out. Yeah, and kids love to help out. They're, they always ask, you know, the, even the tiniest little thing, even if they're not truly helping you, but you're still letting them participate in whatever you're doing somehow. Um, <laughs> they, they love to do that. And, it, yeah, it helps them with that sense of purpose, yeah. Cool. So yeah, then the last question I would have for you then is, yeah, so it must be like tough working with kids that are going through crisis situations. So how do you take care of your own personal and mental wellness throughout all that? Boundaries. (laughs) Oh, that's like the biggest thing in this world is boundaries, especially in my job as a social worker. It can be a very selfish selfless thing we can give a lot of ourselves and then not take anything back so we can get burnt out you know and parents kind of the same thing right you know when you get married you have to be that much more selfless when you have kids you have to be that much more selfless like that's just the pattern kind of of the world of of what the demand is and um you know how are we able to balance it out so um you know for for myself uh, i do have a very i would say difficult job And, um, you know, then going back home to children, young children, you know, that still need to work on their frustration tolerance and a lot of different things, right? Because that's just their developmental stage. You know, we can continue to have forced upon us those stressors. So what do we do about it? So for me, 
I know that family is the most important thing for me. And I know that I am replaceable at work. <laughs> right. So I understand that bringing up my children is a huge responsibility and I need to take it very seriously. And part of that is being, being present for them. You know, they, they do go to preschool and I do have a full-time job and whatnot. So I try to give them the best version of myself that I can. Um, and part of that is boundaries. So like if, you know, I, um, you know, I'm having a tough day, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to be leaving the office early because I need to just process. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of at that threshold where, you know, I'm going to start doing not effective work. So, and I have, I'm a, I'm salary. So I have push and pull with my hours, of course. Right. Um, so that's something that I can choose to do, but I all also kind of have this mindset of like, I'm always like leaving work at this time, uh, you know, like maybe a half hour, you know, wiggle room, but I don't really go past that. Right. Or if, if a parent is calling on the phone and it's like minutes before I'm going to leave, I'm going to have self-care and I'm going to choose not to answer that phone and let it go to voicemail because then you're going to be stressed out because you wanted to leave for the day and then you weren't able to leave for the day. And then you're probably going to displace your frustrations in some way later on that evening. Right. Um, so just trying to be mindful of those boundaries that we set in place. It's so important for our own self-love, you know, and other pieces to, you know, those uh, hobbies, I think are a big thing. I think everyone needs to have a hobby, both of you, uh, the world, y'all need hobbies um, to be able to handle the stress of what we have to encounter. So pick up something that interests you, you know, develop that skill, whatever it is. For me, I actually, I got a Cricut maker for my birthday last year. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. No? Okay, well, it's a machine. You can do a lot of different craft things on it. So I make a lot of different things, but mostly uh, faux leather earrings. And, you know, I, my, my mom was really strong into crafting and, you know, artistry and things like that. And so I've always wanted to develop that, but I never really felt like I had the time or the ability and then having kids, you know, like you just, you push it off and you justify, justify, and it, it doesn't help at all. Right. Like, I'm sure you can push it off and never do it. But for me, like when I, was really kind of establishing myself here at my house and I got, you know, the, the job that I have, you know, we had the, you know, our first couple of kids were like, you know, I need to have something that I can call mine. My husband had started doing like making his own mead and his own wine. And then he's like, Nikki, like, what are, what are you doing? You know, like, what are you going to do? Cause I just found myself like being on my phone on social media or watching shows and stuff that are just kind of like, you know, your mind is just gone, right? <laughs> You're just watching something that really is not beneficial. Um, so like what constructively could I do to really relieve that stress? And some people do do, you know, TV and stuff and that's okay. But for me, I wanted to be more productive. Um, and so I took on the Cricut Maker piece and you know what? I pushed myself to get it started and to just do it, right? And I love it. So like that's part of my self-care is, really identifying a hobby that I can kind of call mine, you know, using that as a way to be able to let myself go and let those strong feelings go. So I can still feel that sense of peace. I can fill myself back up again and then I can, you know, start the next day. So and sleep is very important. Sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Did you guys actually know that a huge piece of mental illness has a lot to do with sleep? I believe it. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I believe the questions we ask is how's your sleep so that's a that's a big piece is making sure that you're getting enough sleep if it's too disruptive figure out a way to get that fixed because it's going to really impact you we need to normalize the struggle don't we absolutely absolutely yeah mm -hmm. well yeah Stephen, did you have anything else that you wanted to ask no i'm good uh okay. thank you so much for talking with us i'm uh, it was such good information. I'm super excited to, to edit this. Um, yeah, totally. Pick pieces from it. You don't have to use it all. A lot of times it was just going on rants. So <laughs> That's what we like as podcast hosts. When okay. Then we don't have to think of, oh, what am I going to say? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs>
all but right. we're just the platform and you just get to share all of your wealth of information so yeah. okay yeah <laughs> well if you ever want me on again i'd be happy to just chat so are there any resources or organizations or something you'd like to plug some some sort of something you'd like to promote i would say the the biggest platform online for mental illness would be nami n-a-m as a mary i um they can give you links of like support groups for a lot of different things parenting mental illness any of that stuff and then like organizations that maybe like are advocating or can offer supports for specific populations um they will give you tons of information on like safety and you know numbers that you can call there is like a universal suicidal hotline there's also like a texting line right 741741 you can text at any time like a parent child anything and and that's a totally anonymous um as well so there's a lot of options out there i know nami is a really big one though online so awesome and uh yeah we'll put some links in our episode description for our listeners so that they know how to access that well thanks guys yeah thank you so much Thank you. Yes, we really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, it was fun. Awesome. And yeah, just blessings for the rest of your pregnancy and the birth and that fourth trimester. (laughs) No, Thank you for listening to our podcast. Please send us any questions you may have to careconversationspod at gmail.com. Or find us at Care Conversations Pod on Instagram. See you next time. Name.